Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on Tuesday, August 13, 2019. Rodrigo Acevedo of the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency interviewed Earl Swift, author of The Big Roads, The Untold Story of the Engineers, Visionaries, and Trailblazers Who Created the American Superhighways. The discussion included talking about Thomas H. McDonald and his career in the Iowa Highway Commission and 34 years as the head of the Bureau of Public Roads, now the Federal Highway Administration. Topics covered included McDonald's beginnings in Iowa, his contributions to the highway system, and general history of the highway system in the United States. Today, I would like to welcome Ross Swift, author of Big Roads, the untold story of the engineers, visionaries, and trailblazers who created the American superhighways. Mr. Swift, thank you for joining me today. You bet, Rodrigo. Happy to be here. So let's get to it. The first question is, who was Thomas McDonald? Thomas McDonald was the single man most responsible for the American highway system as we know it today. And uh, he was an Iowan. He uh, was born in Colorado, but uh, grew up in Montezuma in Powashik County. The son of a family that owned a uh, lumber mill and various other building supply interests in Montezuma. And eventually attended college at what's now Iowa State. And in the course of his studies there, fell under the mentorship of an engineer by the name of Anson Marston. Anson Marston was the first dean of the College of Engineering at Iowa State and probably the country's foremost expert in flood control culverts and road drainage of his era. We're talking right at the turn of the last century. And he convinced young McDonald, who was a very, a, a super serious young man, a guy who didn't smile a lot, was preternaturally uptight, extremely driven in his studies, convinced young McDonald that rather than pursue one of the established fields of study in engineering, railroads and water and sewage, that sort of thing, convinced him that he should consider roads, which were a completely new area of study at the time. you got to understand that at the turn of the last century, there were virtually no paved roads outside of the cities in the United States. And west of Omaha, there were no roads at all until you got to the far west. In Iowa, there wasn't a single paved road outside of the big cities. And after a rain, the roads would devolve into a shoe-sucking mud made all the worse by the very rich soil that Iowa had, which on the one hand gave it some of the the best cropland in the world, but on the other hand, produced a mud that was nicknamed gumbo. It was a black, incredibly goopy mud that would swallow up a horseless carriage or a horse-drawn carriage up past its axles. And so McDonald took Marston up on this suggestion and in the process did some of the first real user surveys of roads in the country and was consequently made the first state roads engineer, highway engineer in Iowa. And as such, developed Iowa's highway system, which was woefully underfunded. And because it was, McDonald came up with a system of prioritizing roads. And in the process, 
kind of conceived of the notion of trunk roads versus little local roads. He concentrated because the state's roads budget was so tiny, he realized that if he were to try to spread that money around throughout the state on all of the roads that needed attention, you wouldn't even be able to do routine maintenance, let alone serious construction. So he narrowed the focus of spending down to just those roads that connected major economic centers in each county and consequently came up with a grid of state-financed roads, left the little stuff to the counties and the towns, but was able to make a real difference in Iowa's road system. And he held that job for about 15 years until eventually he was tapped to become the head of the Federal Bureau of Public Roads and remained in that job for 34 years and remade America's highway system in much the same way he had done Iowa's. How did he end up joining the Federal Highway Administration, the Bureau of Public Roads, from his time in Iowa? How did that transition happen? The transition happened because his predecessor died in office, a guy named Logan Page. And he took the job in 1919 in the midst of a great debate among highway officials throughout the country over whether the nation's highway grid should be conceived, built, and managed by the federal government or should be left to the states and just kind of coordinated by the feds. McDonald and Page very much favored the latter. They wanted a federal aid highway system in which the states would decide which highways were the most important to them and where the money should really be directed. And then the feds would serve as kind of a coordinator to make sure that those major highways in each state connected to the highways in adjoining states and also that those highways were built to a national standard. But it would be up to the states to come up with that national standard. And the tie would always go to the states if there was a disagreement with the feds. And McDonald and his allies prevailed in that debate. And that really set the stage for road building in the country that continues today. We still have a federal aid highway system 100 years later, exactly 100 years later. It's a century now since McDonald took over the job. On his watch, the feds and states got together to get behind the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1921, which is the single most important piece of road legislation that's ever been devised. It's the blueprint for everything that followed. Going back and reading some of his work in Iowa, it seems like he was very meticulous, very scientifically driven. So how did that shape his work at the federal level? When he took over in Iowa, I mean, roads were primarily built by localities and were ridden with corruption. That whole process was, was just a mess. And McDonald recognized very early on that, for instance, in bridge building, a handful of contractors had divided the state up into regions so that each would be guaranteed a piece of the pie. And they tended to build their bridges rather badly, so the taxpayer was ripped off twice. First, because the bids that they got on bridge building jobs were not competitive, and the state paid too much for those bridges, the, the taxpayer did. And second, because the bridges were so poorly constructed that they needed constant maintenance and often rebuilding. And McDonald introduced scientific bridge building with concrete and steel. You can still find his bridges all around Iowa today. 
they don't necessarily carry main road loads, but for instance, the Lincoln Highway, which passes through the state from east to west, exists in its original form in many places. And between, for instance, Ames and Boone, it parallels the modern Lincoln Highway, which is US 30. It runs just to the north of the main road today, that original route developed in the teens. And the bridges that McDonald oversaw the construction of are still carrying loads on, on that original little two-lane version of the Lincoln. So when he came into the federal position, he applied much of the same empirical analysis to road building that he developed in Iowa. He was not a risk taker. McDonald believed that you don't commit money to a project unless you had empirical data supporting that investment. And so he was an early advocate of traffic studies. And in his mind, it was as great a sin to overbuild a road, to build a road more extravagantly than the traffic load required than it was to underbuild one. Of course, underbuilding was the problem that most motorists noticed at the time. And he really inculcated not only the Federal Bureau of Public Roads, but the American Association of State Highway Officials, ASHO at the time, now the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, still a very influential group, inculcated them with this scientific bent. And really, everything that has made the American highway system really the premier example on the face of the planet has arisen out of his drive for scientific backing for everything that he did. The radii of curves, the grades that are acceptable on the US numbered US highway system in the interstates, the width of lanes, the width of bridges, the load bearing characteristics of bridges, every standard that we have in the highway system originated with Thomas McDonald. Can you speak on how they came about making sure the numbers on different highway systems, either going north or south, either east or west, so there was a diversion of a main highway? Okay, well that takes a little bit of a prequel story. When McDonald took over the BPR, America had an embryonic interstate highway system. And I don't mean the interstates like we know them today. I just mean it had roads that went from coast to coast and from border to border. But these roads took the form of privately managed auto trails. The first big roads in America were privately conceived by businessmen, mostly. The first being the Lincoln Highway, which was conceived by a guy named Carl Fisher who lived in Indianapolis. And the country was crisscrossed by this grid of anarchic auto trails. McDonald came on board and very quickly saw that private interests had no business running the country's transportation grid. And so after the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1921 was passed and the states developed their most important roads and the BPR oversaw the connecting of all these various state roads to those in other states, McDonald saw that they had to come up with a different way of labeling them that took these private auto trail names out of the equation. And it made sense that they would go with numbers. So in 1926, 1925, 1926, he assigned one of his lieutenants, a guy named Edwin James, to oversee a committee to come up with a way of numbering the principal highways in the U.S. And James's committee came up with this 
numbering scheme that numbered all north-south highways with odd numbers and all east-west highways with even numbers. And under this scheme, the easternmost north-south highways, those along the east coast, would have the lowest odd numbers. So you'd start with Highway 1, which runs up the fall line of major east coast cities, from basically from Maine to Florida. And you would have Highway 101, hugging the Pacific coast in California and in Oregon and in Washington. So the thinking was that if you knew what highway you were traveling, you'd know approximately what your longitude was on these odd numbered highways. And he did the same with the even numbered highways. The lowest number for the even numbered highways was along the Canadian border. And the highest number was down along the Gulf and the border with Mexico. So, Highway 2 ran way up north, and Highway 98 ran way down south. And everything in between followed this rational grid. And the beauty of it was that you could add to it without messing with the numbering. You could add additional numbers. And also, another part of the kind of rational thinking was that any auxiliary roads off of these main highways, if the auxiliary roads became principal routes in and of themselves, could be designated with a three-digit number that followed the same scheme. So, for instance, an auxiliary of U.S. Route 60 could be 460, and so on. And the system worked beautifully. James also designed the badging, which used the federal shield that you find on the dollar bill. And we had a numbered U.S. highway system in 1926. There are a few exceptions to the numbering grid. The one that comes to mind immediately is US 66, Route 66, which goes from Chicago to Los Angeles and really followed none of the parameters of the numbering system as it was established. But that was kind of a political compromise that was struck between several states and the BPR. His time in Iowa influenced him at the federal level. And I know there's a big conception that Germany, the Autobahn system in Germany influenced the US highway system. Can you speak a little more on that? Yeah, that is one of the great myths, really, of the interstates, the later superhighways, that the autobahns were sparked our development of the interstate highway system. It's not at all the case. Again, I have to give you a bit of a prequel to the main story, and that is that within a very few years of the numbered U.S. highway system's development, it was already overtaxed in the cities. Out on the open road, no problem. But in the central cities, it was a real problem. Now, the Germans started developing the interstates in the very late 20s, actually before Hitler became to power. But then the work on their superhighway system really got into high gear under Hitler. And MacDonald, as well as several other leaders at the BPR, took trips over to Germany to have a look at what they were doing. And they came to the conclusion that although it was impressive in scale, the Autobahn system really had no practical application to the United States. For one thing, it was clearly not designed to carry civilian traffic. This was a military road system that allowed for the rapid deployment of military forces from bases to the German frontier. It didn't go through cities. And in America, the real need for road improvement for bigger highways was right in the cities. It's a, I think, a popular conception that the interstates were originally designed as a cross-country road grid 
that went into the cities as an afterthought when actually just the opposite is true. If you read a report that the BPR put together in 1939 called Toll Roads and Free Roads, it becomes pretty clear the identified need was urban and that the radial highways coming out of a city's downtown area and stretching into its suburbs could eventually be extended to meet radial highways coming from other cities and thereby you could build a cross-country superhighway system. But in the beginning, it was cities that McDonald and his lieutenants saw as the real pinch points in the American highway system of the 30s and early 40s. One of the things that laid the groundwork for the development of superhighways in America had nothing to do with Germany. It was a series of highway use tests a series of a vast system of data gathering that McDonald put into place and that gathered data on highway usage throughout the 1920s. And it was from this research that the BPR came to understand, for instance, what grades you could subject traveling vehicles to and expect them to maintain speed, what curvature of the highway lanes could a car traveling at 35 miles an hour sustained without being overtly affected by centrifugal forces, that sort of thing. All of this was plugged in to the interstate system that we eventually got. Now, you can credit the Autobahn for one thing, and that is for generating interest in Congress in a superhighway system. The actual construction of the Autobahns really had very little influence. But the fact that Germany had this system under development got a lot of people in Congress excited about the idea of replicating that sort of system in the United States. And among those who was excited by this idea were not only members of Congress, but FDR, who at one point called, in 1939, called McDonald into his office. And he had a map of the lower 48 on his desk in which he had drawn six lines in blue pen. Three lines representing routes going north and south, one at each coast and one down the middle of the country, and then three crisscrossing those lines and going from west coast to east. And he told McDonald, you know, I've been fooling around with this whole idea of a cross-country superhighway system, and I can't claim that there's any scientific basis for what I've come up with here, but would you go back and have a look at whether we could do something like this and whether we could make it pay for itself. And that is what drove McDonald and company to produce Toll Roads and Free Roads, that 1939 study. And one of the important findings of Toll Roads and Free Roads was that a toll system would never work on a large scale in America, that there was actually only one stretch of highway in all of the country, counterintuitive though it seemed, where tolls would actually pay for the operation of the road. And that was between Washington, D.C. and Boston, that Northeast Corridor, which remains, of course, one of the busiest corridors today. Only there could you finance the construction and maintenance of a highway system of the sort that FDR had mapped out on this map of the lower 48. Elsewhere, it was, uh, you were going to lose money hand over fist. So the first conclusion was, you cannot make this self-liquidating. You're going to have to come up with a way to finance it that uses a different vehicle. Another finding of toll roads and free roads that's probably more lasting, and we now have a lot of toll superhighways, was that McDonald and his lieutenant 
Herbert Fairbank, really kind of the guy who did most of the writing of toll roads and free roads, concluded that you could build a, as I said before, a national cross-country superhighway system if its first role was to address the stultifying traffic in the cities and was an extension of the radials branching out from business districts in those cities. And the report contained a map of the lower 48 showing a proposed grid based on traffic patterns, and it put the highways where the need was the greatest. And if you were to look at that map today, you would see that it very, very closely parallels what we got years later in the interstate highway system. A few years after that, five years after toll roads and free roads came out, no action had been taken in making the system that it calls for a reality. So as the war neared an end, of course, the country was preoccupied during those years. As World War II neared an end, FDR again called on McDonald to put together a committee to kind of update that study. And the result was an even more detailed report that not only amplified the need for an urban first interstate highway system, but also got into the particulars of how that system would be designed in great detail. That report, shortly after it came out in 1944, became the basis for an act in Congress passed that December that created the interstate highway system. It did it only on paper, did not include any financing, but the system, 95% of what we know today is the interstate highway system was laid out in 1944. And that's an important thing to remember because when all of this work was done in toll roads and free roads in 1939, this update in 1944, and then the act of Congress that created the interstates, Dwight Eisenhower, who over the years has been given most of the credit for the interstate highway system, was kind of busy elsewhere and really had no hand. He was a latecomer to the process of conceiving and planning the interstates. It is an interesting parallel that just as McDonald was starting his career at the federal level, Eisenhower was part of a road trip through the United States. And then late years later, as McDonald, 34 years into the job, his time ends with Eisenhower. So after 34 years, how did he meet his end? <laughs> well, Ike fired him very shortly after taking office. Ike signed the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, which gave the first serious financing for the interstate system. So that was his most important role, that and cheerleading. Let's back up for just a second, because there's a standard mythology that is developed around Ike and his role in this. And you mentioned a piece of it. In 1919, just as McDonald was taking office at the BPR, the Army launched a truck convoy, a coast-to-coast -coast truck convoy. They did it at the behest of Henry Joy, who was leading the Lincoln Highway Association at the time. And Joy had been beating the drum for most of the year with his army friends that this is something they ought to do just to see if they could do it. And so this truck convoy of incredibly heavy trucks on hard rubber tires left D.C., and it took them 62 days to reach San Francisco. And along the way, <laughs> they, it was like a Joseph Codrad story. They just went through hell to get those big trucks over the Appalachians, over the Rockies, across, especially across the Great Salt Lake Desert, southwest of Salt Lake City, and over the Sierras. It was just a torturous trip. 
And along for the ride was Ike as an observer. He had missed World War I. He was in a state of profound depression about his career and was convinced that he was going to be a desk-bound functionary for the rest of his days in uniform. And he went along as a lark because it was a change of scenery. It would be a bit of an adventure for however long it took to make the trip. So Ike went along, and the mythology says that on this trip, and this part of the mythology is certainly true, Ike saw firsthand just how deplorable the state of roads in America was in 1919, and it was non-existent in places. When they crossed the Great Salt Lake Desert, they were on the old Pony Express route, which is exactly what it sounds like. Tracks running through the desert, and it was less than that in places. The mythology has it that 25 years later, Ike is crossing Europe using Germany's autobahns to move his troops towards Berlin, and he has a revelation what's possible with good highways. And that so armed with insight, he enters the White House and makes the interstates happen. In reality, the interstates were conceptually completed. All of their particulars have been worked out while he was still fighting Germany. And in fact, the interstates received some minor first funding under Truman. But I came in unaware that all that work had already been done and really started beating the drum for financing for an improved highway system. The highway system he got was not the highway system he'd envisioned. Like I said, he had no idea that this early work had been done by BPR. Had no idea that Congress had already approved the interstate highway system years before. But when he came in, one of his first acts was to fire Thomas McDonald, the guy who had done all the groundwork, who was responsible for pretty much every mile of paved highway we had in the United States, directly or indirectly. And then his biggest contribution, as I guess, as you alluded to earlier, was perhaps the funding. So how was the highway system under Eisenhower set up at a funding level? Well, it was not Ike's funding program that was approved. Actually, Congress clubbed Ike's plan in 1955. It got nowhere. And the system of financing using a highway trust fund similar to what social security used was actually developed by a couple of members of congress and approved in 1956 so really you can't credit ike with the financing you can credit ike with signing the financing bill it's a pretty narrow piece of the pie that he is responsible for be that as it may it's the it's the eisenhower interstate highway system now thanks to george hw bush rather than the Thomas Harris McDonald highway system. After he was let go by Ike, what became of the rest of his life? He moved to Texas, and he became head of Highway Research Institute at Texas A&M University and spent the rest of his days there. I imagine that that job brought quite a bit of satisfaction because McDonald was, more than anything, a researcher. He was a product of the Progressive Era, which strove to make government decisions as apolitical as possible by grounding them in science. If you could justify the expenditure of public money scientifically, then you took really all the gray area out of the decision. And McDonald was very much a product of that. And as was Anson Marston, his mentor at Iowa State. Anson Marston went on to become the chairman of the Highway Research Board, which we know today as the TRB, the Transportation Research Board, think tank associated with the National Academies. He was a towering figure and ironically died in a car crash. 
One last question. This whole time we referred to Thomas McDonald by his name, but I know he had a nickname to him being a very serious person. <laughs> well, if you see pictures of McDonald, there's no question that he's uncomfortable having his picture taken. He looks, his fists are clenched. He glowers at the camera and his expression seems to say, take the damn picture. Even pictures of him at his daughter's wedding where he's posing with a bride, he still wears that expression. He was a very serious guy, incredibly formal. Even as a kid, he was one of four siblings and insisted that all of his younger siblings address him as sir. And at the Bureau of Public Roads, he was either Mr. McDonald or the chief. And it said that was true even for his wife. So he was not a guy that you joshed around with. He took almost every meal at the Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C., and usually ate alone. On that note, I would just like to thank you again for being available for this interview. Thanks once again. Rodrigo, I just want to reemphasize the important place that Iowa occupies in American transportation history. Because if it hadn't been for Anson Marston, there wouldn't have been a Thomas McDonald. And if it hadn't been for Thomas McDonald, we would have most likely a very different system from that which we have today, and probably a much less successful one. And McDonald was succeeded in Iowa by a number of chief engineers who carried on the pioneering work that he started there. And uh, we tend to forget that it was farmers who first really embraced the automobile as an alternative to horse-drawn locomotion. And there was a time that 10 years into McDonald's tenure, say around 1913, 1914, when Iowa had more cars per capita than just about anywhere. It's a proud history that the state should celebrate. And Thomas McDonald is a son of the state of which Iowans can be really proud.